So Money Episode 185, Jillian Zoe Siegel. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Hooray for Hump Day. A little Hump Day Wednesday in the middle of summer, July 15th, 2015. Hope you're having a fantastic summer. Today's episode is all about mentors. And uh, it made me actually think about uh, many people in my life that have really given me some life-altering career advice. And it goes back to probably when I was 20 years old, interning at CNBC.com in the sales and marketing department. My boss at the time, Candace Johnson, she uh, was a marketing executive and she'd come on board as a new hire on the job. And I remember she and I, we shared an office and we shared many a late night meals, finishing decks together in that little office. We would order Thai food on the seventh floor of Rockefeller Center. She had just arrived uh, at CNBC from Sony, where she told me she'd gotten laid off. And you know what? The first week on the new job, she was still sending out her resume. I don't know if it's because she wasn't happy. I actually asked her about this. I was like, what are you doing, Candace? And she looked at me and she said, Farnoosh, Always be ready to move to the next level and never get too comfortable. And you know, maybe she was still suffering from a bit of post-traumatic stress <laughs> from her layoff at Sony. I know what it's like to get laid off, so I don't mean to make it sound like she wasn't feeling upset, but um, maybe she was. But point is, I remember she was a really honest mentor for me. And she taught me to be bold, to be confident. And in that moment, to be really proactive in my career. She also told me to never take the subway at night. And I appreciate that advice because as a woman in New York City, it can get a little dicey after 9 p.m., depending on where you are. So for all of that and more, thank you, Candace Johnson. If you're out there listening, I hope you remember me. I totally remember you and I appreciate you. And today's guest is going to share more about the topic of mentors. You know, if you ever wish that You could have access to someone like Warren Buffett to give you advice. Well, she brings that to us in her book, Getting There, a book of mentors, where she interviews Warren Buffett as well as 29 other leaders across different career paths. They all share their journey on the road to achieving success, whether it's Warren Buffett, Frank Gehry, the architect, Sarah Blakely, the billionaire inventor of Spanx. Uh, She has gotten an amazing and impressive uh, array of interviews for this book. Her book offers advice for everyone, whether you're a student listening to this podcast, whether you're a mom at home contemplating starting your own business, whether you are an entrepreneur, whether you're at your nine to five job and enjoying that job and wanting to really make more of your career path. She also wrote the book, New York Characters, which pays tribute to some of the most interesting New Yorkers at the time. Jillian also received her law degree from the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law, and she's also a photographer who lives in New York. Several takeaways from our interview today, including why Jillian wanted to write the book in the first place, especially coming from an author who she admits she didn't have any major mentors growing up. How to get big, important people like Warren Buffett and Frank Gehry to sit down with you and say, sure, we'll give you an interview. Trust me, I took some notes during her answer for that one. 
And of all the mentors in her book, the one whom she felt would serve as her most likely real-life mentor and why. Please welcome today's guest, Jillian Zoe Siegel. Jillian Zoe Siegel, welcome to So Money, a fellow New Yorker. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Your new book is called Getting There, A Book of Mentors. And I just finished telling my listeners in the intro about uh, a very pivotal moment in my career. I had this boss during my internship and she had just started her job. Actually, I, I got there before she did. She kind of came in at the, in the middle of my internship. She was the new marketing manager. And you know what? She was still sending out her resumes <laughs> while she'd started this job. Well. And I looked and I was like, what are you doing? And Candace said, Candace said to me, you know, Farnoosh, never get too comfortable. <laughs> and for me, Candace was an early mentor in my, in my career. And I think for me, I just always tried to latch on to people who'd been there and done that, always asking them questions. I love feeling like I'm being led and mentored. And do you think that we have to seek our mentors or do they find us? Like, how does it work? Um, I think both. I, th- I think that, um, it's a two way street. It's a relationship. So like any relationship, like any friendship or, marriage, anything. Um, it's got to be a two-way street if it's going to be a good one. Mm-hmm. You wrote this book. It's your second book. And um, funny enough, you never had a mentor. I read this in Forbes, so maybe I'm wrong, but I read it's true. reportedly <laughs> Jillian Zoe Siegel didn't have a mentor and wanted to write a book about one. So why was this important for you? Well, I I would look around at all of these super successful people and think, I wonder how they got to be where they are. And I wonder what they have to teach. And, you know, if you could write a book, it's a good excuse to do whatever you want. And um, so I got to sit down with people like Warren Buffett and Michael Bloomberg and ask them anything I wanted to ask them. Um, And I figured if I was interested in this material, other people would be too. Okay. So as a journalist, I have to ask this, how did you get access to these people who have very limited time, they're very VIP. Um, how did you charm your way into their living rooms or the over the phone to ask them questions? That was the that was the hardest part. And that's why um, it took me five years to to make this book. Um, if if I was named Oprah, and everyone was lining up, you know, to speak to me, <laughs> it would have taken me about a year. But because um, the writing took a lot of time. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I really had to sort of be uh, strike a balance between being super persistent and being polite, um, and and you know not take a no as a no if it wasn't a true no. Um, and basically, what that means is sometimes you can you'll get ignored, and that's not a no. If some if you send a request in to somebody and they just don't answer, that doesn't mean. They even saw it. And sometimes if one of their gatekeepers tells you no, it also doesn't mean that your target even saw your request or knows you exist. So um, I basically, I use this metaphor that, you know, try the front door. If that doesn't work, try the back door. (laughs) Try the upstairs window. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Climb in a window if you have to. But, but you, you know, I don't want to encourage people to be annoying. You have to have a monitor, Mm -hmm. you know, and if, if, if I sent, this is true story, sent Bill Gates, um, you know, a request to be in this book and I got 
a thoughtful response from someone. And I, you know, that was that. And that was the end. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't like hound every single person. You know, um, when to just let it be. Right? Yeah. You have to have a monitor about when it's a real no. Um, and, and early on, someone gave me this advice. Uh, a friend of mine from college said, don't take a no from someone who can't give you a yes. Hmm. And that basically means, you know, if a gatekeeper just shoves you off, ignore it and, and keep going. But if the real person says, you know, I got your request and I am not interested, then, then that's a no. Don't take no from someone who can't give you a yes. I'm writing that down. <laughs> who was your hardest get? My hardest get was Frank Gehry, the architect. Um, and the story with that is I contacted his office and there was an email that you could send requests to. And I got ignored twice. No, actually, I got rejected twice. Then I figured out that my friend's father's girlfriend, somehow she said she knew Frank Gehry. So I had her ask for me twice, and she got rejected both times. She got pretty much, I think, ignored both times and then <laughs> eventually rejected. Um, and then I figured, you know, emails are free. I'll just send another one in. And it was, it was you know, maybe like a year and a half later. Um, and somehow somebody got back to me, and they said, okay, send over the material, wow. and I'll run it by him. And they ran it by him, and he said yes. Um, and then he could, proceeded to cancel on me for over a year, oh another gosh. year. <laughs> uh, and finally, I got my, you know, my foot in the door. Speaking of Frank Gehry, he would often say, and this is again from my cyber stalking you and learning <laughs> about the book and and your um, feedback about the book. He said that. Well, he was a he really questioned everything, and that was really a big takeaway for you. He would mm -hmm. say, "Why do we have to do it that way? Can't it be done this way instead?" Did he say that about when he you know when he was building like he built uh, the, the Guggenheim, the Guggenheim, the Guggenheim. And Bilbao? Yeah, um, he he said that about everything, and and you know growing up, and that is actually what all leaders do. That they're independent; they're not following a herd. You know, if you're a leader. <clears throat> Uh, you're looking around and you're thinking, all right, just because it's done that way doesn't mean it's the right way or the best way. Um, and that's how innovation happens. Um, so pretty much, you know, he, he talks about that in his essay, but pretty much everybody in my book is, is a leader and they all kind of think that way. Um, it's sort of, yeah, called thinking out of the box, but... Right. Um, and I read a quote the other day that said, you know, the people, you may kind of laugh at people who have crazy ideas, but they're the ones who actually achieve them. <laughs> yeah. Like if someone actually thinks I want to, you know, create a flying car and I really want to do this, they're, they're like, if anyone's going to do it, they're going to do it. Like it won't be me who's not even thinking about doing this. So um, we have to really appreciate the people who have even the wildest of ideas. And people, the, people who have new ideas experience resistance to them no matter what. I mean, no ma even if it's I'm going to invent the internet. Mm -hmm. People, I, I personally, this is embarrassing to admit, but I remember thinking before I even had an email address and I heard about email, I thought, why would I do that if I could just pick up the phone and call someone? <laughs> so, you know, if, if, if something's unfamiliar, a lot of people 
like to reject it because it's some form of a threat to their way of doing things. Yeah, like why would we bottle water? Well, yeah. <laughs> Water's a free resource. <laughs> why would I pay for it? Sarah Blakely in your book talked about how the moment you think of a big idea is like you're most vulnerable. And it's when people are really going to throw rejection at you. And that's a lot of times for these individuals in your book who've gone on to create, invent wonderful things and change the world, that for them was a lot of times their uh, their hardest moment. So if you can mm-hmm. kind of think about, okay, if I can get through this, the rest is just upside. Yes. Yeah. She, she talks about um, the importance of keeping a young idea secret from anyone who can't directly help it move forward because you're very vulnerable. And if you hear discouraging remarks, it might take you off course. And I totally agree with her. Um, so, so she waited to tell her friends and family about Spanx. Um, she waited till she had been working on it for over a year. And when she finally told them, they laughed at her and they said, you know, okay, footless pantyhose. I mean, you know, <laughs> and, um, and they tried out of love to discourage her from, you know, investing any more of her time in this thing, which turned out to be a billion dollar business. Um, anyway, so that, that's her advice. And I really like that advice. Rejection as a rite of passage. That's what, uh, the takeaway was there, right? That rejection is not, um, everyone goes to rejection and then don't be put, don't be held back by that or your fear of failure that that's probably just a part of the process. Yes. Yes. That's a big theme in the book. Um, a lot of people are paralyzed by fear of failure and they are afraid to do something that they really want to do. Um, and they'll end up sort of just being stuck in an unhappy place on account of that. Um, and, and everyone in my book, all of my 30 mentors, um, really, you know, warn against allowing fear of failure to paralyze you. And I love a quote from Kathy Ireland and she has, um, a really interesting career path cause she was a sports illustrated swimsuit model mm-hmm. and she failed for years as she was getting older. She wanted to do something that wasn't dependent on her looks and she failed for years at launching her own brand. Um, and she finally did it with a line of socks of all things. And, um, and now she has a $2 billion business. Um, but she says, if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. And I love that quote because if you could just view failure that way, like when you encounter it, if you think, okay, this is a sign that I'm doing my job and I'm part of the A team. Mm-hmm. If you just think of failure that way, you know, you, you'll achieve a lot more. Who would you say of the 30 people that you interviewed is most likely to have been your special mentor? Like someone that you really, I guess you really identified with or, or, or whose, whose advice you really took to heart the most. I, yeah, I can't say I identify with this man I'm about to say, but because <laughs> that's complimenting myself in a way I wouldn't do. But I really look up to Warren Buffett, mm. um, and he he is, you know, absolutely where he is in this world because he deserves to be, and um, and so I sort of hang on on his every word because <laughs> um, he has so much incredible wisdom 
on life in general. You don't have to know a thing about investing to enjoy his getting their essay and to get something out of it. And, and you know, even if you're not into having a career, mm -hmm. even if you're a stay-at-home mom, you'll get tons out of, his, out of his essay and it'll make you a better mom. Well, any advice you have on booking him on So Money? I think that if I, if, <laughs> once I get him on the show, it's a mic drop moment. Yeah. I think the show would just like, I think it would just self-destruct after that. And like, you know, it would just be the end, but in a, but in a great way to go out. So going, going out with a bang with Warren Buffett, that's going to put that on the wall, the wall yeah. of uh, the, my to-do list. It's a good goal. <laughs> Uh, Jillian, what would you say is your money mantra? You know, uh, an expression that really captures your financial attitude about things. I guess I, I don't know if it's an expression, but I always try to get the best deal possible um, in whatever, whatever it is. I, I don't like to feel ripped off. That's fair. Have you ever been ripped off? Yes. I'm sure I have, but, but that's sort of, you know, I not, you don't want to, you don't want to, um, shop around so much to the detriment of other things in your life. Cause you can get crazy with this mantra. Um, you know, so sometimes you just got to make decisions and plow ahead, but I just hate that feeling of, you know, spending money on something when I could have spent a lot less on that same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's talk about memories. Now, you're in New York now. Did you grow up in New York? Um, up until the age of eight years old, I was living in Canada, in Montreal, mm -hmm. and then I moved to Manhattan after that. So, very curious about that transition and maybe how that uh, changed or impacted your perception of the way the world works financially, like the way the how money how money works, and what was maybe your most pivotal money moment growing up as a kid, whether it was in Canada or Manhattan? You know what? I have one from India. For oh, you. wow. <laughs> Even better. Okay. This is, a, this is a story. My family traveled a lot growing up and we went on a trip to India and Pop Rocks. Do you remember Pop Rocks? Oh, yes. The, that exploding candy. So we thought, let's bring some to India. I'm sure they've never seen it and we could sell Pop Rocks in India. <laughs> So we you black marketed pop rocks. Yeah, and we went. <laughs> You're my second guess who black marketed candy as a kid. <laughs> uh, we yeah. So we set up like you know we we went to some square, some town square, um, and we set up shop. And basically, everybody was so interested in pop rocks, and everyone wanted to sample, but no one would buy it. And the lesson that taught me is you just really have to know your audience because these people were worried about like getting food on the table and they were not going to splurge on a luxury good like Pop Rocks, mm -hmm. you know, if they just were living hand to mouth basically. Um, and that was, you know, it was like I, I was probably in fourth grade at the time, but I still remember that. I still remember that no one bought it and how surprised we were. And, and you like, know. But it explodes in your mouth. Yes. <laughs> so fireworks in your mouth, man. There, there's no nutrition. Yeah. Um, wow. So lesson is know your market. Know your market. You could have a really great product, mm -hmm. but if you're, if you're, you know, hawking it, 
in the wrong place, forget it. So it's a lesson through failure. And so speaking of failure, what would you say as an adult was your greatest financial regret, failure? Some people say to me, if I'm Jewish, I'd never fail. So, okay, well, what about like a disappointing event or um, something that you wish didn't happen that had to do with money? I remember this and it's like a little thing, but it stuck with me. So one summer I was a real estate broker and basically when you're a real estate broker, I was renting apartments in New York city to people. This was like in, I was in law school at the time and it was my summer job. Um, and so I, did you ever practice law? I didn't. I ended up working in a family business, but it wasn't, yeah, I didn't form, I didn't formally practice law. Um, so, but anyway, back in, into this. So I was a real estate broker and I had leeway in what kind of a fee I took. I could say, you know, I need 15% of a year's rent or I was allowed to take 8% of a year's rent, you know. But so I got a guy who wanted to rent an apartment and he came and we had the meeting with the landlord and he was sitting there and he was about to sign the lease. And just as he was about to sign, he said, you know... I'll do it, but but for, you know, 8%, not 15% or whatever it was. And I said, okay. And mm. I've been kicking myself ever since because I was too young and nervous, <laughs> whatever. But looking back on this, he was in the office with pen in hand. If I said no, he was still going to sign. And so I just lost, you know, It was whatever. tough, though, but just to give you some credit, because from his perspective, he was probably like, you know, I got her, you know, she's ready to close this deal just as much as I am. So at that point, you're both kind of, um, that's okay. You've got a sparking dog. I have a, um, a not so happy baby in the other. Okay. So sorry. It's okay. Um, so, so maybe that is where he felt he had leverage, you know, because he felt like he had you at a moment that was kind of vulnerable. So yeah, well, he did have he did have me, but I really think I had him because he loved that apartment. Like I know, I guess I know more mm. of the situation than I than yeah. he. It was this. Um, it was in the West Village, and it was sort of like a townhouse. It was an unusual thing, and he fell in love with it as soon as you know, as soon as we saw it, and he, it was a done deal. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then I, and then anyway, you, so that's something I remember, and it, it taught me a bit about negotiating. So next time, if someone asked you to do that, what would you have said? I think you have to know, you know, you have to know where the power lies uh, and who cares more. Um, and, and I really think that in that situation, he cared more because, mm-hmm. You know, he wouldn't want to have to go looking for another apartment for days. And, you know, I I think that um, that I had the power, but I didn't know it. Yeah. I read once that a key to winning a negotiation is you have to care, but not that much. Yeah. <laughs> not that much. That's a good story. So how about a so money moment? Let's flip it and talk about a time in your life where you felt like you really climbed the financial mountain, so to speak. I'm, I'm going to mirror my first story and tell you another negotiating real estate story. Yeah, I love real estate. <laughs> if anyone knows me, they know I obsess about real estate. So you're you're giving me what I want. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this is this is a story, and people hearing these numbers who are not from New York City will maybe 
get physically ill because things yeah, are so Yeah, we live in a bubble here, true. Expensive around here. But, I, but a friend of mine um, wanted to rent a place in the Hamptons um, and asked me to come with him and help out because he thought I would be better at negotiating and that kind of thing than he would because he's afraid to ever, you know, make an offer on something um, – you know, he, he pays the stated price for anything. Um, so we looked around and there was this amazing house. It was asking $150,000 for the summer. That's the part where I think someone might (laughs) throw, might throw up about, you know, renting that. That was way over this guy's budget, but the broker just showed it to us. I don't know. I guess the broker was thinking maybe, maybe we might do it. Um, so the this guy he his budget was to spend you know he was he was able to spend about ninety thousand um, dollars. So I asked some questions to the broker. It was kind of last minute, you know. The summer was was just around the corner, and I said, "Where does the owner of this house live? And who would you you know who's been staying here lately and whatever?" And I sussed out that she was out in um, New Mexico. And that she had uh, some young sons in their 20s who would be using the house if it didn't rent. And I just thought, okay, this is a situation where I know that we have the leverage. Because she'll rather take anything than just have her 20-year-old sons using this for the summer. Yeah, um, rookie mistake on the other end. On the other on the broker's end, yeah. right. Yeah, t- takes one to work one, right? right. But um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I said to my friend, you know what, I'm going to offer 90000 because that's what you're willing to pay for some of the other stuff. I'm going to offer that. He said, no, no. He thought it was embarrassing. He had to leave the room when I called the broker. <laughs> He he was like, don't do it, don't do it. And I said, you know, the worst thing that happens is that they say no, whatever, you know. Anyway, we offered it and it was accepted. So that's that is my mirror that made up for um awesome. for my worst real estate. That well. is what kind of a discount is that? That's like a and then you had then you you make but you know well you could have made a lot more commission of one hundred fifty but yeah <laughs> still your friend got the house of his dreams. That's pretty cool. The house of his dreams for a lot less than its market value. Did he at least invite you over for a glass of wine? That's definitely her? yes. Okay, good. Yes. <laughs> That's a great story. I'm actually headed to the Hamptons this summer, not spending $150,000, obviously, for the summer, but I am going for a week, and I found a great, affordable place on Airbnb. Oh, that's so So I get to hobnob with the rich people, but I spent a lot less than they did, and um, I like the house. It's really cute. Doesn't it feel good to get a good bargain? (laughs) It does, especially when you know that... You know, a lot, most people there did not get a bargain. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, all right, let's talk about habits, shall we? Let's talk a little bit about, um, and by the way, before we get to your financial habit, going back to your book, <clears throat> if there was one recurring success habit that your, that your profiles all shared, or some of them shared, like in terms of just maybe, a mentality or something they physically practice, whether it was yoga or meditation. I'm finding that a lot of successful people meditate or they have, they go to therapy. (laughs) So was there anything like that that you saw come up more often than not? You know, I didn't, I didn't see something like that. 
what I saw, like the, the most um, common characteristic between all of my subjects was like a determination and, and a resilience because they all have been knocked down multiple times in their life like everybody does. And some people, you know, allow that to, to defeat them. And these people all got up out of their bed or off the couch or wherever they were, you know, feeling sorry for themselves for a little bit. You could do that for a little bit, but then they just got back up and they tried again or tried something different. And, and I think that is, um, that's the secret, you know, resiliency, Mm -hmm. resilience. Yeah. Resilience and determination. Cause you could have the best idea in the world but if you're not going to be resilient, it just won't get off the ground because nothing is easy. Nothing is easy. That's for sure. Okay. Yeah. So what is your financial habit if you had one? And again, it doesn't have to be something you're doing every day, but it's conscious and you do it more, more than once a week, I'd say. Okay. This is a tiny thing, but I did it last night. Um, is that I was walking by, you know, with my boyfriend at whatever, and and I saw a penny, and I like made a point to go and pick it up. And I just think, if you if you ever think that you're above that, it's just not a good mental state to be in. Um, you know, like why leave a penny? Just just pick it up. Um, and I guess yeah, I think it has to do with um, respecting money. Yeah, not thinking like, not getting too comfortable, not being too mm-hmm. cocky that you're, you know, like, oh, who cares about that? It's just a penny. There's a, there's like Bill Gates, right? They said that like, for him to bend down to pick up a 20, it's like not worth his second. <laughs> it's like, depends what <laughs> it, has, it would have to yeah. be like a $10 million. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or you know, um, but, but yeah, I see your point. And, um, it's true. I got, you know, I found a $20 bill in my backyard yesterday. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Then it must've been yours originally. No? I, you know, I didn't think it was. <laughs> and I was like, I looked around. I live in I live in a sublet right now and there are some apartments upstairs that have balconies and they overlook our our area, our outdoor area, our terrace and I thought maybe somebody from up there like dropped it. So I didn't assume that it was mine when I first saw it. I was like, I'll just leave it here and then but then I'm like, who's going to find this, you know, what am I going to do? Put it in the building like online bulletin like I found a $20 bill in my backyard is yeah, it yeah. like how would I come and identify it and maybe I'll give it to you like I don't know so I just it's yours it's is it okay good I declare if you tell yes. me it's mine I, <laughs> I have no more guilt attached to this so but last night my boyfriend said what are you gonna do with that and I said I'm gonna put it in a place where I have change and eventually I cash it all in but it's little by little, and then I have like $50 or whatever. Yeah. It's, by the way, one of my favorite things is to collect coins and go to the bank and um, get my, well, a lot of times it's like 150 bucks I walk out yeah. of there with. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Well, Jillian, we're almost wrapped here. Before we go, let's do some so money, fill in the blanks. It's just first thing that comes to your mind, finish the sentence. I'm nervous. Don't be nervous. <laughs> I don't bite. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say a hundred million bucks, the first thing I would do is. Oh my God. The first thing I would do. <laughs> so we is... move from pennies on the floor <laughs> to winning a hundred million dollars. Oh my God. Um, redecorate my apartment. 
Ah, that's always nice. No, as a New Yorker, million dollars. That's a lot of redecorating. No, I would actually. I mean, I would give a lot of it away. Yeah. I would. I would. I would give to all of the, um, you know, charities that have been pulling at my heartstrings, and while redecorating my apartment. Actually, I'd get a new apartment. What am I talking? There about? you go. There you go. Well, and just start from scratch. A new apartment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better or both is housekeepers. Yes. Ding, ding. Yes. The one thing that is my guilty pleasure is Nutella. Nutella. <laughs> does, that, does it have to be a money? No. I mean, will you spend money to buy? I'm, I spend money on tubs of Nutella. <laughs> I did not know that. Um, one thing I wish I had known about money growing up is? Oh, when, I don't know. I was sort of raised with an awareness of money. Um, well, I guess how hard it is to make it. Or how it's not sometimes, you know. I sometimes wish that people had told me that I could be entrepreneurial and like make my own money as opposed to have someone pay me every other week mm-hmm. to do their tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it does take hard work. It's not, it doesn't just fall out of the sky. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because? Um, you know, I donate to to. Um, to different things, but it's something where I feel like I'm making a difference. Mm -hmm. And last but not least, I'm so money because. Because, because of Matt Warren Buffett. Yes. What's he like, by the way? I mean, is he, is I, I see him on TV and I know people who've interviewed him and everyone just like you says like, he's the sweetest man. You just can't get enough of his, his wisdom. He's the sweetest, but he's he he is the most grounded um, person, and he has the best memory. He he his stamina, his you know his mm. brain power is just incredible because he does so much. He's got so much going on. But I remember. Um, seeing him a year after we initially met and he remembered conversations that we had during our interview about me, things, things that I had said. Yeah. He's, he is, um, he's just like a superhuman, you know, it's really incredible. And especially for his age, Mm -hmm. you know, like you just, you don't expect, um, that he's, he, I can't imagine if he was ever any sharper than he is right now. Well, I think I've also heard that he lives pretty simply and he hasn't really changed his lifestyle. I mean, yeah, now he's got like private jets and this and that, but he, um, the rumor is like he still has his old car from years and years and years ago. Like he's not a man to spend frivolously and he lives in the Midwest. Yep. In Omaha. In yeah. Omaha, which is that the Midwest? Kind of. Yeah. West. Middle, the mid. Mid, mid. Yeah. But <laughs> point is, is like he's not in LA or New York where there's a lot of, influence here in terms like in material influence yeah he really has amazing values jillian zoe siegel thank you so much for joining us the book everyone is called getting there a book of mentors learn from warren buffett frank gary sarah blakely and uh 30 leaders across different career paths thank you so much for writing the book for joining me and being so much fun 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Jillian, her website is JillianZoeSiegel.com. She's also on Twitter with the same name. We've got all this information at SoMoneyPodcast.com along with the transcript and comments. And there also you can submit your question for me. As you know, Saturdays and Sundays, I dedicate the show to answering listeners' queries. And the way you can reach me is by clicking on Ask Farnoosh over at somoneypodcast.com and answering and typing in your question there and hitting send. And as a reminder, if you'd like to win a free 15-minute money session with me, hop on over to iTunes and leave a review for the show. Every Saturday, I pick one new reviewer to get a free 15-minute money blitz with me. And I've been doing this now for few months. Um, Our reviews are up and running. We are in the almost 300s now with reviews. And I'm just so really honored and blown away by all the support. So thank you so much to every single one of you who's left your review. Unfortunately, having had a 15-minute Monday session with all of you, I don't have that much time in my schedule. But do know that I really appreciate you and I hear you and I, I respect uh, the time that you took to leave that review. It really means a lot to me. And so once a week, I pick one lucky person to get a free 15-minute money session with me. And look, we don't have to talk about money. We can talk about anything you want. It's your time to use and I will just show up with my coffee. So thanks for tuning in today. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your Wednesday. Hope it's so money and hope to see you right back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.